This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome to my garage, where I've created technologies and products used daily by hundreds of millions of people worldwide, and where I now help others take and go from an idea to world-changing innovations. At Kill Innovations, we're all about ideas, creativity, innovations, and encouraging you to take the risk to change the world. What goes into creating an idea that could impact hundreds of millions of people? If I polled most people, they all would say, oh, it's about the idea. The core idea is what I refer to as table stakes. It doesn't guarantee success. Others might say, oh, it's PR and marketing. You've got to have the advertising. You've got to have the press. While PR and marketing are important, it does not guarantee success for your innovation. So what are we missing? We have the idea. You assume you can execute. We have the PR marketing. What's missing? I have a saying I use, which is the difference between a good innovation and a great innovation is the timing. It's rarely about the technology. It's rarely about the core idea. If you've really thought well and you've got a really targeted marketplace, it really is about this timing. And in most cases, you cannot control it, much less predict it. So what do I mean by timing? Now, timing has a lot of different variables. It could be market conditions. Um, it could be the economic condition. Um, some people would say, oh, you should never come out with a new product um, you know, during an economic downturn. However, I can go back and look at companies that launched in economic downturns, everything from you know, Walt Disney Company, Healer Packard started in 1938 during one of the, the sharpest economic downturns in U.S. history. That's when they launched a whole set of new innovations. I'm not a big believer that economic downturns um, is, a, is a timing issue. There are other pieces, though, to it, right, such as customer readiness. Do you really have, is there really a need out there for what you're doing? Is there a channel readiness? Do you have a way to reach those customers? Do you have a way to actually manufacture whatever it is your idea is and bring this to market? There's also social expectations, just the whole timing, the, the consumer awareness, the consumer readiness. I mean, you could argue back in the old dial-up days, we had social networking on a very crude basis, but it took 30 years for all of a sudden, for things like Twitter and Facebook to all of a sudden just become accepted as kind of that social norm. And it's really that social expectations, that timing of technology and readiness and 30 years of percolating things like social networking. There's also competitive changes. Something all of a sudden changes at a competitor where all of a sudden they make a dramatic move. And that causes a timing change of what it is you're working on. And then the one I always love to hate is government and regulatory. You know, the surprise of what uh, governments will do in either telling somebody that they can do something or they cannot do something. Um, and again, you can't predict it. You can't control it. But it's all of this kind of stuff that's all got to be working together if you really are going to uh, have that timing right. So again, you can have the great idea, the best technology, if it's a tech product or the best problem you're trying to solve. But the difference between a good idea and a great idea, it comes down to that timing. So here's a personal story from my perspective. Back in 1982, my background is in computer graphics. 
I worked on uh, something, you know, and I still got all my design notebooks here, uh, what was called GDL, the Graphics Design Language. It was something that I was doing uh, on my own. And it basically was a, a cruder version of what eventually became PDF. Now, I worked on that idea on my own, actually wrote code, had, had a crude version working in 1982. And Adobe came out with PDF in 1992. So a little bit like 10 years before the market was even ready. Another product idea that I was working on way back in the 80s, 1989, was a product that you know, codenamed Opus, which was a search engine for documents and patents. Now, remember, this is 1989, so this is before, really, the commercialization of the Internet. And it looked at scoring um, documents based on cross-references between the documents, which I refer to in my design notebooks as document ranking, very similar to Google. Now, Opus was being worked on in 1989. Google search uh, came out in 1998, you know, nine years later. So what? Everyone has similar stories. Oh, I thought of it first. Um, ideas are a starting point, but if you don't execute, it doesn't matter. You know, could I have done something to drive the execution of this? It's one of those situations where I was so far ahead of the market, it wouldn't have mattered how much effort I put into it. I would not have been able to capitalize on it. The market just was not ready. Um, execution is the competitive advantage, though. You, you, it's not coming up with the ideas. It's that hunger and that willingness to just drive that execution. Now, I've come up with plenty of ideas that have executed products that are in people's homes and in their businesses worldwide even today. So what, so what can you do to make sure you get the timing right? Well, first of all, put your emotion and passion to the side, which is very hard to do, and ask yourself, is now the right time? Is the customer there? Is the problem well understood? Does the customer agree that, there's the, that the problem exists? You've got a solution that meets that. You've got a channel. You've got the press, the market influencers. You've got the non-obvious stakeholders interested. You've got to, you've really got to make sure you understand that the customer's ready, the market's ready, the influencers are ready, and that you've got a solution that meets it. And again, you've got to check your emotion at the door. Now, um, the, the, the one question that I always ask myself when I'm working on an idea and if I'm trying to figure out the, if the timing is right is to ask myself why this is the right time. Not try to rationalize to myself that it is the right time because that's just kind of biasing um, my decision to, to go full speed and go drive that execution. The question I'm asking myself is why is this the right time? Now, if I can go through and and be really critical of that idea, and also I ask other people this when I'm showing off ideas and getting their feedback, then go. If not, then get to the point where you can put that idea on hold. If it's not the right timing, put it on the shelf. And then track the timing and be ready to pull it off the shelf and be further ahead than anyone else. Very few innovators do this. When they kill a product, they kind of throw it away and they forget about it. I say package it up, stick it on the shelf, such that when the timing does become right, you can pick that up, pick up where you left off, and actually be further ahead than anybody else. Leading innovators have a garage full of partial ideas waiting for the timing to be right. In my case, I have ideas on the shelf in the areas of security. I used to do work for three-letter agencies years ago. 
high-performance computing, networking, in a number of areas. But I'm also a little bit unique given where I'm at career-wise. And at the point, at my current point in my career, um, I don't feel like I have to be the one to do them. So in many cases, I give my ideas away to companies that I'm helping with their innovation pipeline. And it's a blast. I mean, it is truly a blast to see others run with it. I do mentoring at a number of accelerators. I have a handful of companies that I actually advise, um, CEOs that I'm coaching. And if I've got something in my bailiwick that aligns with their product, they can have it. Now, that's I, you know, I admit that I'm a little bit unique in that case. But for me, at this point in my career, I love seeing ideas become a reality. Sitting in a notebook, sitting someplace where it's collecting dust in some bin in my in my uh, office um, doesn't means it's of zero value and nobody ever sees it. So, from my perspective, it is helping those individuals who are working on the ideas. But again, the challenge is is this timing. And to be quite honest, I don't even have it figured out. After all of my years and the successes on on products that have gone on to be big wins, to um, products that have been total bombs. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but when you're in the middle of it and you're trying to get that timing right, it is really hard to do. And in most corporations, they tend to overinvest early, they lose their patience, they kill the product, and invariably, just as you kill the product, the market takes off, and you've missed the entire opportunity. I can probably put together a list of 100 products that I've been involved in where we shot it up, overspent early in it, killed it, and when we killed it was just at the time that the market took off. So um, so uh, like I said, it's a blast for me to see others do it, so I, like I said, give my ideas away. If you're looking to learn about ideas, creativity, innovation, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., send an email to innovate at killerinnovations.com. Um, and today's guest is someone who I've collaborated with to bring ideas to market and someone who has a unique, unique appreciation for getting the timing right. So stay right there. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. There's an ancient quote from an unknown author that goes something like this. There is one thing mightier than kings and armies. The power of an idea when its time has come to move. There's that pesky reference to timing again. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations. Our guest today is someone who I've known for some time and someone who I consider kind of a co-collaborator or maybe even a co-conspirator on some crazy ideas. I'd like to welcome Bill Geyser to the show. Bill, thanks for joining us. Phil, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. 
So, Bill, give us the 60-second radio commercial on you. So, how you know when you meet somebody new at a dinner party, how do you introduce yourself? So, I have been um, a uh, serial entrepreneur and a intrapreneur, meaning I've done lots of startups in the traditional sense, but I've also got a fair amount of experience doing startups inside large corporate environments, um, which is, you know, jumping ahead, which, where you and I first met. Um, I've been instrumental in bringing four companies to life, two of which got uh, acquired by publicly traded companies. And then I spent eight years at Fossil, essentially trying to bring uh, wearable computing to life um, inside one of the world's largest uh, watch companies. And I'd say as a theme of my career, I've spent the last 20 years really exploring uh, and developing wearables targeting both fitness and lifestyle markets. So, yeah, so you, you, you've gone through the whole process of starting companies, growing them up. Talk to us, walk us through your early career, because where you ended up or where you're, in, you're at currently in your career has no correlation to the industries you were in when you first started out. You know, um, in my mind, there is a connection, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's what uh, makes me a little bit different is um, when I came out of college, um, I uh, started selling and I was fortunate to get into what we now look at as the computer networking field. And um, along that route, I saw an opportunity to create a small company that specialized in selling network um, accessories, protocol analyzers, uh, bridges, routers, gateways. So it was, it was a uh, value-added reseller, you know, where, with uh, quite a bit of um, uh, professional service um, uh, thrown on top of it. And uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up selling that company to two publicly traded companies. One was more of a, a physical wiring business and the other had more to do with local area networking connectivity and troubleshooting. Um, once, I, once I sold those companies, I uh, decided to take a little time off and I jumped back in the pool. Uh, I had been a college swimmer, you know, uh, actually a lifelong competitive swimmer. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to just uh, jump back in the pool. I'll get in shape. And every day as I was walking into this pool, I saw people in the gym on Stairmasters and bike machines. And all that gear had blinking lights telling people how far, how fast, how many. And uh, I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, that would be a really novel um, tool for swimming, you know, elite swimmers will put in maybe 3,000 to 4,000 meters per year in training. If you think about it, that's, that's over 60,000 lengths of a 50-meter pool. And one of the real challenges, and it's what makes the great swimmers unique and, and separates them from all the rest, is they're able to hold their concentration um, throughout this grueling type of training. And so I created a watch that tracked important metrics that helped a swimmer focus on what made them efficient in the water. 
And um, that was that was kind of where I learned the wrist was a really important um, strategic place on our body. It was an ideal uh, location for glanceable information. And so that's what set me off on this, call it a 20 year journey of building watches that tell more than time. So what happened with that watch then? Did, did yeah, somebody pick I, uh, that up and run with it? Well, uh, I ended up doing a, a global distribution deal with Speedo. And, uh, and I would call it a moderate success, not a great success. Uh, but it was uh, moderately rewarding financially and incredibly rewarding in terms of really understanding some of the challenges of building a, uh, uh, you know, a wrist-mounted display that um, was cloaked in what looked like a cool-looking watch. And, so what, what, uh, year was, what year was this? What year were you doing this? I, uh, I started the development on it in uh, 95, and I soft-launched the product at the World uh, Triathlon Championships in Hawaii in October of... Um, in October of 1997. And that was kind of funny because, you know, you have to be an official sponsor. And I got there the week ahead and I used to wear this product. And I'd swim with, you know, all the lead, the world's best professional triathletes. And yeah, I was a great swimmer. And I was, I was young enough then that I could hold my own in the water against these guys. And I'd always jump out and say, God, I just set the record for the swim thing. And they'd say, Oh, you didn't set any record. And I'd say, well, come here, take a look at this. And uh, it was kind of a stealth-like campaign, uh, which proved very effective. The lady that won the uh, triathlon that year was a triathlete named Heather Fur, and she's on the cover of the Triathlete Magazine, which was the big publication, wearing my little dinky watch, uh, which was a cute, uh, big um, coup for me and the company. And then I went to the World Swim Championships in Perth, Australia, and that's where I closed the deal with Speedo. And, uh, and they took it uh, worldwide under the Speedo brand. So it was. Well, let me tell you, in, in 1995, you were way out there, way ahead of anybody I was way, else. Yeah, well, that's a good point. It was not a, it was not a, if you think about this, this was really sort of the early days of quanti- what we now call quantified self. It's like a Fitbit, except for swimmers. Um, yeah, so, no hey, Bill, let's wrap this. We, we're going to go to the commercial break here in just a second. But uh, I want to come back and talk now about, really, how did you go from that then to trying to convince a company that is the size and scale of Fossil to yep. take on kind of a technology bent that you normally don't think of as being in, in the watch business, but being way out ahead of what today we all tend to, tend to just accept as being – Uh, the normal thing. So uh, just stay right there. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back. I'll be posting links to everything we talk about in the show notes at KillerInnovations.com. Go check it out. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer, Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. When it comes to innovation timing, don't get hung up on looking backwards. Walt Disney said it best, times and conditions change so rapidly that we must keep our aim constantly focused on the future. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations. Our guest today is Bill Geyser. Bill's a longtime uh, friend of mine. Uh, like I said in the first segment, we were either collaborators or co-conspirators. I think some of our bosses would have classified us as being co-conspirators um, in uh, trying to change the, the technology landscape. Uh, Bill, you were so early, and you go back to 1995 on the work that you were doing and the product that ultimately you partnered with Speedo on. But how did you end up then at Fossil, which is where I met you? But how did you end up at Fossil? Well, you know, something you said before really resonated with me, which is um, rarely do you see companies take an idea that might be a little too early for the market, put it on the shelf and, you know, wait until the market matures, uh, and then they bring it back and reintroduce it. Um, but that's exactly what happened with, um, with uh, my, call it, uh, obsession with uh, watches telling more than time was the the swim watch project was interesting. It was fun. Um, I don't know if it was a business. I'll call it more of a hobby, but I, I really believed it had a lot of potential at some point in the future. And I wasn't really sure what was going to be the driver of that. And it was in uh, 2004, I saw people, mostly men wearing Bluetooth headsets and, um, um, in fact, there was a, a, a massive growth in the use of Bluetooth headsets in 2004. I think there were well over 100 million of them sold uh, that year, up from maybe 16 million the year before. And inevitably, what I saw was the way people used them was when they got an incoming call, they would reach into their pocket, pull their phone out to see who was calling, and then they would accept the call. And I thought... Well, you know, it doesn't sound like that's a lot of work to do, but if you're getting a lot of calls every day, reaching into your pocket every time an incoming call comes in could get a little, um, you know, it's it's just unnecessary. And since these were Bluetooth-attached devices, I thought, you know, this is a really great use case for a watch. It's a simple little glanceable display about, um, you know, um, incoming calls or text messages and things like that. So I approached the management team of Fossil, who I had met during the swim watch days. That's where I first got acquainted with them. But, uh, you know, they didn't have any sport brands at the time, so they passed on uh, a collaboration with me. So I approached them again with this idea about tying watches and mobile phones together. And, uh, you know, as you might suspect, most of the feedback I got ranged from, are you crazy, to you are nuts. But there were a couple of people inside who were sort of intrigued with the idea, and uh, they brought me on board. Little did I know at the time that they were uh, well uh, underway in projects with Microsoft and Palm to build what I'll call were really early smartwatches. And uh, I ended up getting brought on board to lead, uh, lead the division that uh, developed and commercialized those products. Well, I think those of us who've been in the uh, 
in the tech world for a little bit of time can't forget the picture of uh, Bill Gates and the uh, the spot watch um, holding it up at the press conference and uh, yeah uh, <laughs> and and even you know the early Palm days uh, you know the, the the early Palm watch that that's almost those one it's almost a poster child example of you know great idea. But the market timing was a big challenge. Would you agree with that? Well, Marcus, yeah, I would very much agree that timing, market timing was uh, a fundamental issue in both products. But what's interesting is the Palm Watch was, uh, was really, it was a PDA on the wrist. And the problem there was the PDA was in the process of going extinct at the time. You know, it would, people more and more were using the mobile phone in their handbag or their uh, pocket to use as a scheduling, uh, you know, as a calendar item and all the PDA kind of functions. The Microsoft Spot Watch was the Apple Watch 10 years ahead of its time. So two different, you know, two different uh, timing-related issues, but ultimately – you're either way too early or you're way too late in the market. And either one, uh, the results are normally the same. It's a, it's a disaster. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm trying to replay back here how you and I met. I guess it was what, back in 2005, uh, my yeah. team had put out some, we were on a innovation and design roadshow. We'd put out some videos on some early concept devices and we had, put out this concept of a wrist device that actually replaced the mobile phone completely um, onto the wrist so you wouldn't even have the phone in your pocket kind of a concept. And you saw that and reached out to me back then in 2005, and that's how you and I got connected. I guess, uh, you know, like crazies, kind of lashing our boats together a little bit. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was ecstatic when I saw the articles about you talking about this. I felt like... Uh the Richard Dreyfus character in Close Encounters, you know, where, you know, there's yet another person making a strange volcano. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I, but I really believed that, you know, at the, at the really early stages of these kinds of, of products and categories or paradigms, if you want to call it, it really does help to network with people and, and get your ideas out there. And, uh, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. That's a, that's something I believe in very, very strongly. The last thing I would ever do is, is try to take an idea and, you know, put it into some sort of stealth mode. Uh, because I think you just, uh, you really lose uh, the opportunity to collaborate with lots of smart people and, and build relationships that can take you to many different places for a long period of time, as is what you and I have done. So. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point because, you know, in Silicon Valley, the common request is, is hey, uh, you know, I got this great idea, but I'm not going to tell it to you unless you, unless you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, you know, the general approach, you know, with venture capitalists, they won't, they will not sign. I typically will not sign. And I don't ask anybody to sign. I mean, when I, when we started showing off some of that early work back in 2005, you know, my biggest battle was not senior management. My biggest battle was the attorneys, and particularly the intellectual property attorneys, you know, making right. the big claim that we're giving stuff away, when in reality, the fact that we put it out there, you saw it, reached out, and then five years later, we come back together to basically uh, unveil uh, what Fossil had, what you and the Fossil team had done 
um, around the, the, the concept of the idea that turned into uh, Metal Watch. But that would have never have happened if we played the, the non-disclosure game because our attorneys would still be talking about what's in that NDA. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, is, is uh, people are worried about competition, um, and, and that's why this NDA thing comes up. But I really believe, as an entrepreneur, you should be much more concerned about having no competition because being the only guy on the block selling something is next to impossible. So having some other people with similar ideas is great validation for what it is you're trying to develop and sell. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, you think about, you know, collaboration being one thing, second thing being, you know, this, you know, this, this finding uh, or making sure that you're not the only competitor, the only, you're the only person in the market, because that tells you you're going to be pretty lonely and you're going to be, you're funding the 100% of the education. If you had to put together a third thing that you think innovators should be just aware of as they try to get into this innovation game and uh, kind of push into new markets, what would that be? You know, I think speed is is probably your most important feature. And I'm not talking about the speed of the processor if you're selling some sort of electronic type of device. I'm talking about your speed of execution. You know, um, small companies have a competitive advantage over larger competitors, and that is they can generally move much faster. And you that have is to the use key that point there. It is, it is. Yeah, you're right. The speed thing is one that just cannot be underestimated. And that's where the small companies really have the advantage. And you and I both were working for very large companies, and that's hard to do. So, hey, it Bill, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time, sharing your uh, your experience in the uh, getting out there ahead of the marketplace. Um, and uh, if people want to follow up or track what you're doing, how do they find you? Uh, I am Bill G on Twitter. Okay, great. So follow him on Twitter. I'll have links in the show notes. When we come back, I've got a brain hack for you or this week's killer question. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So how are you doing with your weekly creative muscle exercises? My objective is to give you challenges each week that will cause you to exercise and basically expand your ability to be creative. So get out your moleskin or whatever you use to capture ideas. I tend to like uh, Evernote app on my, on my iPhone and my Android phones. Uh, you can write it on the back of a napkin, whatever it is. But you need to carry something with you and you get in the habit of writing down whatever inspires you, frustrates you. If you see an idea from somebody else, you hear somebody else having a frustration. And as, as each week goes by, it'll be easier. You'll start capturing ideas. You'll start ranking them, figuring out which ones are the most interesting. And that's where it all starts. That's where the spark becomes uh, real. Questions are a mind hack, as we've talked about in the past. Your brain cannot stop answering it. So in this week, what's the mind hack that we're thinking about? 
So this week's killer question is, what industries are analogous to ours and what can we learn from them? What industries are analogous to ours and what can we learn from them? So it doesn't matter what business you're in. Uh, we're all fighting essentially the same fight. Uh, basically, we're all trying to design some kind of a product or service that a customer will prefer over that of a competitor. Now, to do this, you just can't look at your peers, companies that look like you. If you make widgets, you just don't look at the other widgets. You don't look just at your competitors. You look for things outside of that, that in other industries that you can be inspired by. And maybe they've solved something in one industry that can apply to another. Now, in my case, I find the airline industry endlessly fascinating. If you remember back a couple of months ago on, a, on this show, uh, I shared a story about Southwest Airlines. Now, it's like the tech industry. It has gradually found a way to make its core products less expensive. If you remember what a plane ticket cost you, you know, in the 1980s and the 1990s and the 2000s. In 2010, you know, you've seen this constant decline in the cost of uh, what it takes to buy an airline. You can say the same thing in the tech industry. You know, what did a PC cost in 1990, right? It was $3,000, $4,000 for a a clunky machine to today that has infinitely more power and you can buy it for under $1,000. So the airline industry, I look, is somewhat analogous. Um, so you can make your core products less expensive, more accessible. Now, the challenge being is that the customers also had to accept a vast reduction in services and expectations, right? In the early days of the airline industry, it was this glamorous experience. Everybody, um, you know, it's like going to, you know, a, a movie premiere um, and how you got treated on the airline. Today, not, not the case. In the early days of the PC industry, phenomenal customizations and all kinds of things and a level of support and capabilities, not the case. Um, the, the challenge is, is what the customer really wants and what they're willing to give up in order to get it. In this case, money. Customers are focused on getting what they can at the best price possible. So, the key there is, is just as long as the core criteria are met. So what are the fundamentals that have to be in place in order to maintain an ongoing happy relationship? So it's kind of that minimal bar. Uh, and so I looked in all the years of my role as the CTO at Halo Packard, looked at these kinds of analogous industries and took those lessons. Now I'm going to give you a completely different example. Suppose you were the head of operations at a mega church, Chicago's Willow Creek, Joel Steen's church and in Houston, it's 16,000 people and see 64,000 people um, every week coming in and out of their parking lot. You know, there's a high odd that you're going to have fender benders and gridlock and dangerous traffic in the parking lot, people getting run over for all I know. So what do you do? Where do you go to learn the mechanics of moving that number of vehicles and that number of human beings in as efficient and as safe a manner as possible? Well, what did Willow Creek and Joel Osteen's church do? They went to Disney Academy at Disney World. 60 years of crowd management has made Disney operations the undisputed champion of event control and coordination. And by working with Disney, these churches learned a few things about integrating their system of traffic flow and parking. Accidents went down. Customer satisfaction went up. Um, everybody was much happier in, in the outcome of the whole process. So the 
the challenge here is, is, you know, who would have thought going to a church comparing yourself to going to an amusement park? So find those analogous industries that you can work from. So again, it's hard to do though. We kind of get stuck in our thinking. We get stuck looking at the competitors. So how do you challenge yourself to look outside of yourself and your peers? By asking yourself, what industries or businesses that are unrelated to yours are dealing with issues similar to yours? For example, issues of production, customer segments, marketing, uh, whatever. What are the lessons learned in terms of that push-pull between where these businesses are succeeding and where they are failing? And where can you learn, one, to minimize the risk, but also find new opportunities? And what are some non-business examples with similar issues to yours, such as nonprofits or non-government agencies like the Red Cloth? So as a reminder, this week's killer question is, what industries are analogous to ours and what can we learn from them? So go out, look at, find three industries you will go look at and identify three ideas from each that you can apply to your product or business. So we're looking for nine ideas this week. So a few years back, I created a two-hour audio course on how to create innovations. It's on Amazon selling for, like I, I looked it up, it's selling for $18.99, which is an outrageous price. So I've decided I'm going to give it away. So text the word INNOVATE to 33444 if you're outside. Send an email to innovate at killinnovations.com. While, while you're at it, go check out killinnovations.com. The new site is live. It's still in beta mode. It's a place where you can plug in. You can see all of the past shows going back 11 years. Um, you can also find all the show notes and links. Also, don't miss out on the great shows on the BizTalk Radio Network. Visit biztalkradio.com. While you're at it, go ahead, grab the mobile app. And you can listen to Kill Innovations and all of the other shows over at BizTalk Radio, and you can listen to those live. If you know of an innovator whose story uh, that others should hear that I should know about, drop me a note at phil at killinnovations.com. That uh, will wrap it up for uh, this week's show. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, join and listen. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 